The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast novel series written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Jagan. Presenting Season 9, Avalanche. Head of Medusa. Written by Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin. Valkyria stalked among the buildings near her quarters, avoiding the Thulians and Germans that lived in this quarter. If anyone so much as talked to her, looked at her with anything less than deference, she would have killed them on the spot. Since her return from the destruction of Metis, she could not bear to be around anyone, even Ubermensch. Nothing calmed her, and the increased activity of the Thulians at the behest of the Masters only served to infuriate her further. It all seemed like so much motion and noise, masquerading as action. She fumed. This was intolerable. They had the Untermenschen beaten. It was just a matter of time and resources. Then again, they had had the Untermenschen beaten ten, twenty, even thirty years ago. It had always been nothing more than a matter of time and resources. The only time it hadn't been had been seventy-five years ago. As she stomped up and down the walkways, she thought back on the past, remembering how she had come to this place of frustration, artifice, and slavery. There had been a time when Euphemia Reichenbach hadn't known war. She was a simpler young woman then, and happier. Her country was still in the throes of a painful rebirth, though as a young girl, whose father at least had a job as a policeman, that had not affected her so much as others. Numerous sanctions, a socialist revolution, economic destabilization, a lack of jobs and sometimes even food, and the loss of so many young men in the Great War had sent shockwaves through Germany that were still being felt. Despite the hardship that seemed to have become an everyday part of life, Euphemia was a happy enough girl. Tall for her age, she was just showing signs of maturity at eleven. Even then, however, it was clear that she was going to be a great beauty. Blonde hair down to her mid-back in a tight ponytail, electric blue eyes that were unsettling to some for their tendency to hold a gaze even after it was impolite to do so, and a sharp intellect rounded her out. An intellect that tended to reduce people around her to simple things. Could they be of benefit to her, or could they not? Then again, that was life for many people in those days. Things began to change, however slowly, in Germany. She read as often as she could and dreamed of traveling. One day. Everything seemed to boil down to one day, maybe, for her. Marriage seemed like it was going to be added to that list, since that was what girls did. The prospect didn't have any appeal for her. Her future would constrict, shrivel to a single point of childbirth and rearing, and nothing about that future of Kinder, Kirche, Kirche even remotely satisfied her. She had trouble deciding on what she really ought to do with herself after she finished her schooling. Her hometown had little to offer, save for mountains, pastures, and not terribly much else. Nothing that could hold her attention at any rate. So, when the changes began... She took notice. When she was twelve, she started to see signs of those changes everywhere. 
in newspapers, new books that were being published, even hearing about these new ideas on the radio. Her countrymen took on a different demeanor, ever so slowly. Her family had more food and better quality. There were more jobs, more opportunity, particularly for a policeman like her father. One politician, in particular, had begun to stand out from the rest. He was called Adolf Hitler. His Nazi party seemed to be leading the charge for Germany to regain her former glory. Her father, already in a position of authority, was recruited into a new force, and with it came new responsibilities and privileges. Euphemia's father had never struck her as a man who was terribly proud of himself. He wasn't prone to much emotion at all. He didn't beat her mother as much as some fathers did with their wives, which she was glad for, but that seemed to be the extent of his interaction with his family outside of the evening meal. When he received his new job, however, there was a new spark there. He walked straighter, kept his chin up, looked people in the eye again. Her father had become a member of the Sturmabteilung, sometimes known as the Brown Shirts, as a part of the new Germany. And just before her thirteenth birthday, there came an even bigger change for her father. He quit his job as a policeman and joined the Schutzstaffel. He had a new uniform and more authority. And one of the first big changes for Effie was that he urged, no, insisted, that she join an organization too, the Bund Deutsche Mädel, part of the Hitlerjuden. It was what respectable families did for the Vaterland. And besides, there were no other youth groups to join any more. They had all been disbanded by law. Effie, a childhood nickname that she liked much better than her given name, didn't mind, even though six days out of seven, the things that the girls in the BDM did were boring beyond belief. More preparation for motherhood, more Kinder und Kirche, although Kirche was more or less absent from the discussions, but there was lots and lots of physical exercise, gymnastics, swimming, hiking. These activities were far more appealing. And she could always escape the homemaking lessons by pleading that she wanted to learn more about the Hitlerjuden movement, particularly about the young martyrs. Oh, how she loved to sing Die Fanachuk! And she dreamed about a chance to save one of the great and important— Half the time her daydreams ended with making an impassioned dying speech as she lay, bloodied but beautiful, in the arms of weeping men. The other half ended with her miraculous recovery and being hailed as a heroine, a savior of Germany, and being idolized wherever she went. She would never have to go home to her stodgy little village or wash so much as a single dish again. She'd see all the great cities—Vienna, Strasbourg, Hamburg, Berlin— She'd see all the things she had only read about in magazines. She imagined herself in places she had only heard about, dressed in fabulous dresses of the sort she only saw in movies. And of course, when she wasn't daydreaming, there were the camping trips, ski trips, and trips to training camps sponsored by the Hitlerjuden. It didn't take much convincing to get her parents to allow her to go. Her father seemed happy if only because it was one less thing for him to worry about— and her mother didn't dare argue. And if she wasn't seeing the big city she dreamed of, at least she was getting out of her village. And then, in 1938, at last, she was invited to participate in the Nuremberg Rally. 
She was to represent the new League of Faith and Beauty in the parades. And it didn't matter that she was only one of so many nearly identical blonde-haired, blue-eyed beauties who rode on floats or walked in the parades dressed in medieval or peasant costumes. She wore the dress of a Teutonic princess and waved from the pinnacle of a parade float. She felt the eyes of the crowd on her, and it was intoxicating. It felt like the beginning of something breathtaking. But for her, it marked the end. No more rallies in Nuremberg after 1938. The new war was on, and all of her effort and concentration was supposed to be on the war, and on her duty to the fatherland to produce more German children. And it was hinted, oftentimes rather strongly, that one didn't need to be married to do this. There were weekend retreats where one would meet and entertain heroes of the fatherland, and if things happened that resulted in a child, well, so much the better. But the mere idea of letting some strange man, however much a hero of the fatherland he was, put his paws all over her, was revolting. So she always had some excuse not to go to one of those retreats, not even when her own father suggested that it might be fun. Perhaps that was why, in 1941, she was selected, along with others of the BDM, to help with the morale and organization of the new German colony of Hegewald in the Ukraine. It occurred to her, long after the fact, that perhaps someone had actually intended her to become the reward for one of the SS in charge of Hegewald. However, it turned out that fate had a different plan in store for her, in the end. Himmler was coming to visit, and Effie, as one of the most beautiful of the BDM morale corps in Hegewald, had been chosen to ornament the stage where he was going to speak. She remembered that day as clearly as if it had been yesterday for her. More than a little wistfully, she sometimes wished that she could relive what she had felt then. The air was cold and crisp that day, but she didn't mind. She stood tall and proud on a short platform that sat upon a stage that workers had erected. A full band was playing, bright and sonorous in the early morning sunshine. Flags and streamers in the national colors were flapping in the light wind. Soldiers, officers, and other big men in the government were all in pristine uniforms or freshly pressed suits. Some of them, particularly the politicians, looked bored, but Effie didn't care. The scene was utterly perfect for her, a representation of her country's renewed might, and she was a beautiful part of it, the living representative of German womanhood. Finally, the band ended the anthem they had been playing, signaling that it was time for the assembled crowds to be seated, at least those in the front rows, who actually were provided chairs. Effie dutifully took her seat. She had been positioned behind and to the right of Himmler, who was standing at a podium and surveying the assembled men and women. He cleared his throat and was about to begin speaking when a series of muted thudding sounds were heard in the distance. Effie had never heard anything like it. Some of the older officers and soldiers, however, had. They immediately began to scream and shout, shoving their subordinates and giving orders. Two soldiers rushed to the stage, one of them nearly knocking Effie over as they moved to flank Himmler. Gasmaskin! Gasmaskin! Schnell! Effie felt as if she were glued to where she had ended up standing on the stage. 
Gas masks? Why? Her question was answered a moment later when the first of the mortar shells landed. The shrapnel injured several members of the crowd. It was the first real taste of violence she had ever had, and she instantly felt queasy at the sight of the blood. When the burst shell started to billow clouds of noxious yellow smoke, her knees turned to water. The people closest to it screamed horribly, louder than the sounds of panic and commotion from everyone else. More shells hit the ground, one after the other, and Effie watched as the entire town square started to fill with the deadly gas. This can't be happening. I can't die here. I haven't done anything yet. The two soldiers flanking Himmler were trying to both pull him in opposite directions. They were both so crazed with fear, they hardly recognized that they were working against each other. Himmler was shaken, trying to keep a grip on the podium in front of him and yelling at the soldiers to unhand him. One of them did, jumping off the stage and running into the crowd, but the other was still too frightened to notice. Time slowed down for Effie. She watched as a single shell arced in from the sky, landing some fifty meters away. She saw the shower of earth and stone that it threw up when it hit, and then the almost languid plumes of gas. If not for their deadly purpose, it was strangely beautiful to watch. She took a moment to notice that she wasn't hearing the clamor of the panicked mob anymore. Instead, she heard voices, snatches of conversation that faded in and out of her mind as quickly as they came. How odd, she thought, caught up in the unreality of the moment, she looked at the soldier that was pulling on Himmler's jacket, and then she only heard one voice. Fuck, I need to get this bastard out of here, or I'll be shot for certain. Jesus, he's going to get me killed. Why isn't he moving? We've got to get clear of the gas. It took her a moment before she realized that it was actually the soldier's thoughts that she was hearing. Her eyes grew wide for a moment. Without any real conscious decision, she felt her body start moving. She felt outside of herself, as if she was finally enacting one of her heroic childhood daydreams and watching it at the same time. She took one step, then another, and another. With a shove, she sent the soldier sprawling. He slid over the edge of the stage, landing in a heap at the bottom of it. Himmler turned to look at her, flabbergasted. Whether from her audacity or the ludicrous situation, she couldn't tell. Nor did she care. She simply gripped Himmler's right arm and pulled. Where two young and strong soldiers couldn't move the official, she was easily able to lead him along. She was willing him to follow her, though she didn't know how. With a few steps, they were both running. It felt like they were going faster and faster, and then her feet were no longer on the ground. She looked back to see that she was flying. Himmler was hanging from her tiny hand by his right wrist, his face passive. Below, she could see the quickly shrinking town square. It was almost entirely full of gas, and those few people still mobile were moving into the woods north of the town. At that moment, she almost fell out of the sky. This certainly hadn't been part of those daydreams. But in the next instant, she felt galvanized by a thrill of perfect certainty. Of course... Everyone had heard of Ubermensch and Eisenfaust, and she was obviously one of that elite company of uplifted humans. 
No wonder she had felt no attraction for the sad little mere human males who had offered themselves for her consideration. She was a superhuman, homo superior. Finding a common human attractive would have been as ludicrous as if she had been attracted to an ape. She selected a place clear of the gas, and well guarded by plenty of SS, and set Himmler down inelegantly in the middle of them, letting her control of his mind pass so that he would recognize just who had saved him. Only then did she set down herself, amid the gawking SS officers, prepared to graciously accept their adulation. Valkyria had never become used to the stench that Thulians gave off, even after all of these years. Probably, as an ubermensch, all her senses were more attuned, more sensitive, but she had to wear nose plugs to filter out the burnt orange musk cinnamon reek they gave off. She had been fascinated by them when she had first joined their cause, but that early captivation had faded quickly. She had a certain amount of respect for the warriors, who were uncompromising in their single-minded determination for victory, but not these, not the ones around her at the moment. They were Thulians in name only. They didn't have a name for themselves, or at least not one that had ever been translated. Servitors always scuttling around on some errand or task, quick to fulfill an order. She found them contemptible in their manner, but highly useful at the same time. Efficient, if nothing else. She was walking quickly, three of the rot-scented creatures trailing her. She had been busy drawing up plans for assaults, issuing orders to suicide cells, reviewing intelligence and other messages passed on by spies and other defectors that sought to aid the Thulians. Tasks that, however necessary, made her feel as if her skull would split open. We should be planning feasts and carving up the world by now, not reeling from a defeat and biding our time. The loss of Ultima Thule had put her into a frenzy. Once she and Ubermensch had safely escaped and recovered to a nearby base, she had killed three Thulians and one of her human subordinates in a rage before she was calm again. Eric, Ubermensch's true name, which only she and one other knew, had been content to stand back and watch. Blood always pleased him, and he didn't much care about the source. There's another fool to be tolerated. Eric Fleischer, the latest heir to the title of Ubermensch, was thoroughly insane. Homicidal to a fault, paired with his nearly unrivaled powers, he was a terror for his enemies. Such ability wasn't paired with much of a mind, however. Simple pleasures like torture and murder were what he enjoyed most. He was an acceptable lovemaker, but such pursuits interested Valkyria less and less as of late. His damnable obsession with two of their foes, the Russian, Natalia, and one of the Americans, Murdoch, consumed nearly anything that he did. Always talk of vengeance and the pain he would inflict, how none could escape his grasp, and so on. His madness was truly evident whenever Valkyria happened by his personal quarters, maps pinned to walls detailing his quarry's movements, hand-drawn portraits of wildly varying quality, scribbled manifestos and diatribes, all of these papers and other clutter of an insane and retribution-driven mind were scattered about, with an organization that only made sense to the madman himself. It was tiring, and when it wasn't tiring, 
it was annoying. Destroying Metis had been a welcome distraction for both of them, even if it had led to that pompous-ass workers' champion joining them, officially, here. If Effie disliked Eric, she completely despised Boryets Ivanovich. The Russian was equally filled with disdain for Effie. That was the one thing that she had been able to glean from his mind, which was almost completely resistant to her talents. Not that she needed to read his mind to have known that. He never missed an opportunity to plainly state exactly what he thought about his new comrades, despite their joint purposes. He never failed to get in jabs about female emotionalism getting in the way of getting the job done. As if she had ever exhibited an unwarranted emotional moment in her entire life, killing underlings didn't count, naturally. Despite his betrayal, at least Eisenfaust had treated her as an equal. After her heroic rescue of Himmler, the entire world changed for Effie. She was powerful and respected, no longer just a pretty girl to be passed off to some officer. She was one of the Ubermenschen. Her time, at least when she was not in combat, was reserved for those who were at least of the rank of general, and there was no question of whether or not that company included sex. There were more parades for her and the other metahumans, crown jewels of Germany's might and supremacy. All of it suited her perfectly well. With her new abilities, she was able to navigate the intrigue and backstabbing that accompanied rising through the ranks into the dizzying heights of power and influence. She could read the minds of nearly everyone that she met, and was finding that she could also control some of them. She could affect their emotional states, bringing a man from the highest ecstasy down to the most soul-rending despair, all with a thought. It afforded her opportunities that she might have otherwise been denied. Armed with such power, she was able to manipulate her circumstances substantially. She didn't simply want to be a showpiece, always on display. She wanted adventure, an opportunity to prove herself and to fight for her country. There was also a deeper, secret reason for her machinations that she admitted to no one save for herself. She wanted Eisenfaust. Of course she wanted Eisenfaust. Every German woman wanted him. Heinrich Eisenhower was the perfect Germanic hero, an ubermensch even more than the one that had been given that eponymous title. Blonde, blue-eyed, square-jawed, with absolute control over every aspect of his life. He was never rattled, never upset, never taken aback, and never allowed any setback to stop him. Effie's aerial battles with Le Faux-Semblant set her into a fury. His fights with Spitfire merely left him sitting at a desk, making diagrams of every aspect of the fight, and plotting how the next time would be different. The day when she had met him and been inducted into his elite wing within the Luftwaffe had been enough to eclipse every other honor and accolade that had been given to her. The ceremony had been publicized, with many attending generals, politicians, and so forth. She hardly noticed any of them. Heinrich was the only one that held her attention during the proceedings. No one else could matter. They were all human. She was Ubermenschen. As was Heinrich. Even past that, he was above and beyond the others. For one, she could hardly get any reading from his mind. 
It was locked behind a wall of iron, as unbreakable as the iron fist that gave him his name. But it was also very clear that he shared an interest for her that was not becoming to an officer for a subordinate. It took her exactly two weeks from becoming part of his elite group of flyers to becoming his lover. She was certain that with any other man it would not have taken nearly as long, but Heinrich was so different. He wouldn't be swayed by anyone once he had set his mind to a course of action. And it had taken him that long to decide that he wanted her. It simultaneously vexed her and drew her in that much closer to her. The German high command had been ecstatic. They were the perfect couple, exactly what was wanted for posters, statues, and propaganda. An Ubermenschen baby would have completed the perfection, so far as they were concerned, but Effie was not at all interested in satisfying that particular item on their checklist. Let them keep hoping. I possess everything I could ever want or need already. Heinrich and the thrill of battle. A child now? That would only subtract from what I currently have. Unfortunately, it seemed that even those things would fall from her hands, no matter how tightly she tried to keep hold of them. As the war pressed on, things began to look less perfect and glorious with each passing week. News from the front had turned from being about astounding victories in captured land to tales of mounting losses and cities falling. She and Heinrich, at times, felt like they were the only part of the German military that was making any sort of difference whatsoever. They fought in perfect tempo together, Eisenfaust with his lightning-quick reflexes and almost instinctual understanding of aerial combat, and Effie with her ability to read her opponents' minds and anticipate their attacks. Their air wing alone stood without major losses, while the rest of the Luftwaffe was suffering— Lack of experienced pilots to replace those killed in battle. Poor choices by those in command that saw those few pilots that showed promise shuttled into bomber planes instead of fighters. And faults in equipment that saw lives unnecessarily lost. It was one of the few things that seemed to truly anger Heinrich. Effie, those fools. They are losing this war for Germany. And they are too damned blind to even see it damnable pride and no connection to their men, and their spending lives pointlessly. It was rare that she ever saw her lover lose composure, and the first time Effie witnessed Heinrich erupt like that, it had shaken her to her very core. That had been the day that Effie first entertained the idea that they might actually lose. It had never seemed possible before. Their might was absolute, and everyone— from Hitler to the soldiers, even common shopkeepers and workers, had all been on a rising cloud of enthusiasm and pride for the Vaterland. What could possibly stop them? The more she thought about it at night, after a mission or exertions in bed with Heinrich, the more she saw the truth in his words. What could stop Germany's glorious ascension? Our leaders. It had chilled her to her very core, and she had trouble sleeping with the thought sharing her bed. It seemed as if Effie's streak of good fortune had finally run out. The Reich was finally coming to its end. The front lines were manned by old men and those hardly old enough to lift rifles. 
The SS were still fighting fiercely, despite diminishing numbers. Her own father had fallen several months before, and her mother was manning an anti-aircraft gun. She didn't mourn overly long for the man, and she expected to get notification that a bomb had obliterated her mother any day. She was resigned to the idea. Continually, the front had been pushed back, further and further into Germany, until Berlin was in sight of the Allies. Sometimes, Effie morbidly wondered who would be the first to pick her country's bones, the Russians or the Americans. Neither prospect held much appeal for her. She saw no way out other than to continue forward and fight to the bitter end alongside her lover. Even Heinrich had become disillusioned at that point, maybe before she had, although it was hard to tell due to the way he held his true feelings close and away from others. Probably her best and least painful prospects were to die in a grand and fiery dogfight against overwhelming odds. At least she would linger in the minds of her enemies, and possibly even on film, as a fearsome and implacable foe. Her wishes were only half granted. The end came after their Uberluftwaffe had been dispatched to protect another supply ship, flying out from one of their secret bases in South America. The mission had been routine, until they saw an entire flight of fighters on the horizon, ready to intercept them. Somehow the Allies had discovered where they would be flying, and had come prepared. Effie had fought these enemies many times. Those that had lived from previous engagements were the best of the best, and they faced her now. Corsair from the United States of America, in his signature painted eponymous plane, La Fosse en Blanc, the French woman, who Effie's sharp eyes could recognize even at a distance. Brumby, the Australian, and Gyrofalcon, flying in tight formation. They were accompanied by a dozen other fighter planes, all intent on ending Effie and Heinrich's lives. The aerial battle was short and brutal. The casualties inflicted on both sides came at great cost. Plane after plane caught flame and fell into the Atlantic. In the end, only the Ubermenschen on either side were left flying. Effie and Heinrich versus four of the Allies. Even with all of their gifts, it was a hopeless battle. Effie's gifts could allow her to read the thoughts of a single opponent, but two at once, much less four? She would anticipate one, only to be caught unawares by the partner, forced to rely on her training to carry her from certain death at the last instant. It wouldn't be enough for victory. It might not be enough for survival. Where did I go wrong? Where had everything gone wrong? Was Heinrich right? Was it the inherent flaws of their leaders, even Hitler himself, who were, after all, only human? Would things have gone better if she and the Ubermenschen had forced a coup? It was all too late now. The last move in their deadly aerial dance was as beautiful as it was inevitable. Brumby and Geierfalcon had been taking turns diving on Effie, each time stitching her plane with bullets. The awful game of tag had finally come to an end. Geierfalcon was closing for a final run, and Effie no longer could use the control surfaces of her plane to evade. If she tried to eject from the plane and use her own metahuman power of flight, she would be gunned down quickly. She was done for, and could even hear her opponent's thoughts concerning the coming victory. Panic flooded Effie's mind. She had been faced with death many times before. First, in the Ukraine with Himmler. 
since then, by the intrigues of those that would have seen her used for their purposes or dead, then through ground warfare, and finally in the air as part of a fighter wing. This time was different. She knew with certainty that she was going to die. She could not dodge nor ditch from her plane. They were in the open ocean, and she would either drown or have sharks for company when her own ability for flight was exhausted. In response to these troubling thoughts, her throat closed, dry and tight. Her stomach felt like it was made of ice, and she was covered in a cold sweat. Her final thought cut through all of that prior emotion and physical reaction like a scalpel. I don't want to die! Before she could react further, she saw Heinrich's fighter cut a perfect maneuver. He was above her and her pursuers, trying to gain altitude over his own attackers, when he suddenly and inexplicably performed a textbook wing-over, plunging straight down towards Geyer Falcon. He would have hit Geyer Falcon's plane dead center, except that Geyer Falcon's reflexes partially saved him. Heinrich clipped Geyer Falcon's wing with his own, sending both planes into uncontrolled spins to the ocean. Effie's heart fell. She instantly knew that she had finally used her mental abilities to influence Heinrich, and at the same time was ecstatic to be alive still. She watched, almost as if it was happening in some sort of dream state, as both planes spiraled towards the unforgiving waters below. Suddenly, her entire world was drenched in a sickly green light. Her skin felt like it had ants crawling beneath it, and her teeth rattled in her skull. As quickly as the otherworldly light had come, it was gone again. She found herself somewhere else, above a weirdly curving cityscape that seemed to somehow stretch from the horizons up into the sky itself. She no longer had control of her fighter plane, and it was all she could do to keep the control stick steady as it plummeted towards an open area in the heart of what appeared to be a plaza. The plaza of a city that had appeared below her, out of nowhere. Small details stuck with her before the crash. The awful red-orange color of the sky above, the red and black steaming jungle at the outskirts of the city, how the entire world seemed to curve back in on itself at the edges, most of all, all of the tiny gray figures in that square, growing larger and rushing up to meet her and her plane as she fell towards them. Her next clear memory had been of lying on a table that wasn't shaped quite right for her frame, with odd humanoid creatures tending to her wounds. And Doppelganger, right there, as if he belonged among them. Welcome to the world of our secret allies, Liebchen, he had said, with what might have been a faint, very faint, sneer. And allow me to present their masters. He had stepped back, and two more insect-like creatures out of a nightmare had stepped forward, one lavender and one burnt orange. Mistress Baron, Master Gero. This is one of the Third Reich's greatest treasures, the warrior Valkyria. Only the fact that she was held in some sort of paralysis had kept her from screaming. She had come to learn that the truth was much more frightening than her fears. The masters were certainly monsters, but not of the sort that she had originally conjured. Still, she had been able to entreat with Baron and Garrow. They seemed to be the chosen representatives, or leaders, 
for the rest of the masters, whomever they were, and secure a place for herself and Heinrich in this new and strange society. The technologies that they commanded would have made the top minds in Germany weep in envy, and the resources that they possessed. It was unfathomable. What could we have accomplished if only we had come to know the masters and their Thulians at the beginning of the war? It was plain that they were not human. She only dared to try to read the minds of Gero and Baron once, and she suspected that it was only because they had allowed her to do so, since there was a clear well of telepathic power in both of them. What she saw and heard were completely incomprehensible. The thought processes were too different for her to take in and make any sense of. Two things did stand out, however. Greed and amusement. She had met her share of men with wanton tastes, but the masters, it was an inhuman level of avarice. The Thulians were far simpler, which suited her perfectly. Closer to men, save that they didn't have the same drive, the same spark of will. In the years since her arrival, she had surmised that they were holy creatures of the masters, bent to a specific purpose. Still, that left the question. What were the masters? What were their designs? Why tolerate us? Why humor us? Why? 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 There was only one human that she truly feared any more. Doppelganger. Spy, master torturer, and inscrutable bastard. As alien as the Thulians could be, Doppelganger was worse in her mind, despite being a fellow ubermensch. It wasn't just that he could shift his countenance at a whim. She had grown accustomed to the strange and sometimes distressing manifestations that power could take in a metahuman, as the world at large called them. His eyes, whatever their form, had a tendency to stare through people. Like a shark's, they were flat, cold, and emotionless. The one time she had brushed his mind with her own, she had immediately recoiled. She had only received impressions, since she did not have an opportunity to delve deeper, but they had been enough for her to decide never to try to read him again. Dark, writhing shapes, and hunger that was so all-consuming and disturbing, she had felt as if it would draw her down into its maw in passing. She still felt her flesh crawl whenever Doppelganger came near, and she knew that the bastard relished her reaction. As time had gone on, especially these last few years as the campaign to conquer the world had been ramping up, Effie had begun to suspect that Doppelganger didn't share the goals that the Thulians and her warriors believed in, that he was simply using the war and her cause as a vehicle for his own endeavors. That she couldn't figure out what those were infuriated her the most. She had decided early on that he needed to die, for her own satisfaction, if nothing else. One couldn't keep something so dangerous and cold nearby without peril, at least not forever. Killing him wouldn't be an easy task, however, and one that she wasn't sure she could take to completion, at least not on her own. Besides, he was useful, for now. She paused for a moment, alone, as she rarely was, in one of the external corridors of the building devoted to all things martial and associated with humans. Despite her position, she was segregated with the rest of the non-masters, a fact that she resented daily, but was also secretly happy for. 
she gazed out of a trapezoidal window across the faintly moving mass of red and black vegetation to the one-way window across from hers. She could not see in, but if anyone stood there, he, or it, could most assuredly see out. There, across from her, was another building in which only Thulians and the mysterious masters were allowed. Not even her thoughts could penetrate those walls. What went on in there? Whatever it was, it resulted in contradictory orders coming at regular intervals. Orders to pull back at the moment when victory was most assured. Orders to attack an insignificant target when a vital one was momentarily vulnerable. Insanity. Those orders did not come from the Thulians, who shared their desire for conquest and the values Effie, Ubermensch, Eisenfaust, and Doppelganger had brought with them, and the dream of a thousand-year Reich. The masters ruled over Thulians and humans alike, although Effie and the latest Ubermensch had been weaning some of the Thulians over to their way of thinking of late. Effie didn't understand the masters— that made her fear and hate them above all others. She had been overjoyed at their discovery when she and Heinrich had been brought here. The Thulians had offered her something to believe in again. Ubermenschen in power and control of the entire world, in time. She had entreated with them and convinced her new allies to rescue many of the best and brightest Germans before the final fall of the Third Reich, Unfortunately, there had been very few German Ubermenschen left alive at that point in the war. That had disappointed Effie at first, but it came to suit her purposes. She was part of an elite, now more than ever. It earned her the admiration of a large number of the Thulians, who counted no Ubermenschen of their own in their ranks. They valued strength, and strength Effie had. In those early days, the original, and thankfully sane, Ubermensch had done more to help her. Heinrich had further retreated from her after their capture, as he called it. She suspected that he had come to know the truth about his selfless act to save her over the ocean. A small part of her mourned their lost love, for a time, but that part eventually faded. She had a new purpose now. If she couldn't save Germany and the Vaterland, she could at least save herself, and the world as hers to rule. Over the years, her fame and popularity within Thulian society had grown and grown, until she had a large following among their population. With Ubermensch's help, she began to Germanize many of the Thulians. This led to the establishment and expansion of Ultima Thule, all with the seemingly tacit approval of the masters. She had been able to use her authority granted by them to convince Nephthulians that it was for the war that was to come, to give a permanent base to launch attacks from. Her ultimate goals, however, were far more personal. She intended Ultimate Thule to become the crown jewel of an empire that she would found on Earth, one that would make the Third Reich pale in comparison. She became even more fanatical about the idea after the original Ubermensch's death. At first only a suspicion, it soon grew to be outright truth in her mind that the Masters had played a part in his demise, which had come so suddenly and unexpectedly. His successor wasn't half the man that he had been, but much more easily controlled. Another of the moves and tools of the masters that she had co-opted for her own purposes. In time, Heinrich completed the break from her when he made his first attempt to escape. It had been futile, a move she had seen coming for years. By that point, 
she had precautions in place. He wouldn't even speak to her when he had been caught, an act that had cost the lives of no less than thirteen of her indoctrinated bullions. She had wanted to keep him for herself, a personal prisoner that she would be able to work on. It still irked her that she had never gotten past his mental defenses, save for the wants. With time and appropriate persuasion, she felt that she could succeed and subsume his will. That was not to be. The masters exercised their prerogative, taking possession of him for an undefined purpose. While it had initially infuriated her, she came to regard it as a small matter. She had more important things to worry about, after all. Heinrich would have just been another distraction. Then he made the second attempt, and this one succeeded, causing her and Doppelganger and the Thulian High Command to accelerate their plans for conquest, or, more precisely, make the launch for conquest before they were quite ready. Even so, the invasion had been a stunning success. Most of their targets were obliterated with little meaningful opposition. The few pockets of resistance that did crop up suffered extensive losses. Many of Echo's metahumans, and those of the rest of the world, lost their lives standing up to Valkyria's forces. She had even been present to witness the final demise of Heinrich. Before she could relish the victory, all of them had been recalled, told to return to base and wait for further orders. Why come all this way, crush our enemies, only to pull back at the last moment before they capitulate? Another nonsensical order from the masters that she did not understand. After that first glorious and short-lived worldwide battle, the only strikes that she had been allowed to make were small in scale and almost random. Some had purposes she could understand, while most seemed to be harassment, recreation to pass the time until what? Even with the losses they had suffered in the Superstition Mountain Range, and especially at Ultima Thule, the combined might of the Thulians was more than enough to destroy any that opposed them, if they were utilized properly. She had railed at the High Command to no purpose, literally to no purpose. When she started in on something they didn't want to hear, they somehow cancelled out what she was saying, leaving her voiceless, moving her mouth randomly. It was then that she realized that she lived at their convenience, not as an equal ally, but as a pawn. If she wanted power, she was going to have to take it. Fortunately, there was a substantial and growing contingent among the Thulian troops who felt exactly the same as she did. Ever since the first attack, she had been grooming them and their leaders. They would not put up with the leash holding them back for much longer. And when they threw off their fetters, she would be the one leading them. From the vanguard, as was the only way for an Ubermensch. You've been listening to The Secret World Chronicle, written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Jaguer. Narration and production by Veronica Jaguer at VoicesByVeronica.com. Quality review and production assistance by Laura Nicole at ResonantMoon.com. Music by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. The Secret World Chronicle podcast novel series is released under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 4.0 license. 
For previous episodes, check out secretworldchronicle.com. The Secret World Chronicle is published by the fantastic people at Bayon Books. Find fellow SWC fans on the Facebook group at www.facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Secret World Chronicle. And as always, thank you for listening.